This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. I'm Kyle Callums. The sixth annual Native American Cultural Celebration continues today at the Museum of Native American in History in Bentonville. This year's theme is Indigenuity 2.0, honoring the lessons of Mother Earth. The celebration continues through tomorrow evening. You can learn more at Mona. Later this hour on our show, we'll learn more about this week's symposium hosted by the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design at the University of Arkansas, dedicated to place and the contemporary South. Dean Peter McKeith will speak with us in about 12 minutes. We'll start with an eye toward November. We are officially under 50 days until Election Day. Our podcast, Natural Election, is running down the ballot measures you'll see on this November's ballot. And Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth brings us an explainer on Arkansas Issue 3. First, let's start off with that title. The actual title of the ballot measure is this, an amendment to the Arkansas Constitution to create the Arkansas Religious Freedom Amendment and to provide that government may never burden a person's freedom of religion except in the rare circumstance that the government demonstrates that application of the burden to the person is in furtherance of a compelling government interest and is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling government interest. Did you catch all that? No? Okay, let's break it down. So the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says everyone has the right to practice their own religion, or no religion at all. In Arkansas, voters went even further back in 1874, establishing a freedom of religion provision in our state constitution. That's Article 2, Section 24, which says, All men have a natural and indefeasible right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own consciences. It also states no authority can interfere with the right of conscience or faith, and that no one religion or faith will be given preference by law over another. And then in 2015, the Arkansas Religious Freedom Restoration Act was signed into law by Governor Asa Hutchinson. It essentially says government cannot place a substantial burden on someone's religious freedom unless it furthers a compelling government interest in the least restrictive way possible. And this amendment, Ballot Issue 3, will make that law enshrined in the state's constitution. So you may be asking yourself, why this issue now? It is unconscionable that they would threaten to take away the livelihood, which means they're attacking the pursuit of happiness of the people of the state because they have a religious or medical exception that they wish to pursue an exemption to say they don't want to take an injection into their bodies. That was Senator Jason Rapert of Arkansas District 35 speaking to 4029 News earlier this year. Rapert is one of the bill's sponsors. We reached out to his office for comment, but did not hear back. Holly Dixon is with the Arkansas branch of the American Civil Liberties Union, and she says the restrictions and laws that were put in place around COVID-19 sparked legislators like Rapert to push for a religious freedom amendment. One of the sponsors of this was Senator Jason Rapert, who has long been known to try to use religious liberty in order to uh, not have to comply with or recognize other civil rights, whether it's privacy, autonomy, equality, etc. She says ballot issue three may seem simple. Give people more religious freedom. But it could have unintended consequences. Of course, religious liberty is a fundamental right, but it cannot be used as an excuse to target harm or discriminate against people. And for every generation of civil rights laws that we've passed in this country, there have been religious objections and attempts to use religious liberty as a guise to skirt civil rights laws. But in addition to that, it opens a Pandora's box of potential claims and defenses for all civil and criminal cases. Um, It would create a new argument or defense for having to comply with any or all state, local, civil, or criminal laws. Jerry Cox with the Arkansas Family Council, a conservative research group based in Little Rock, says he doesn't believe people would use the amendment as a shield for inconvenient laws. And so it doesn't give religious people just a blank check to go out here and 
break laws or uh, it just says that if the government is going to need to regulate religious freedom, they have to do it in the least restrictive way possible. And that really is in keeping with case law from around the country and here in Arkansas that's been established by the courts for years and years. And so it strikes a really good balance between the rights of the people to exercise their faith as they see fit, but also gives the government the power to step in and say, you know what, you're breaking the law, you can't do that, we are going to burden your free exercise of religion. If it's illegal uh, today, it'll still be illegal if this amendment passes. Ultimately, he says the idea is to grant civil protections for people of faith, and he means people of every faith. Well, somebody asked me the other day, they said, will this allow people to, uh, Satan worshipers? <laughs> and I just laughed and said, they could already have a satanic church. They could already worship Satan if they want to. It's their right under freedom of religion. That's the kind of country we live in. Now, they can't break the law. If they break the law, they can go to jail. But you can worship whatever you want to, and um, you have the freedom to do that today. You'll still have the freedom to do that under this amendment. Um, And I'm okay with that because that's the kind of country we are. So if that's the case, then what exactly does Issue 3 do that the U.S. and state constitution don't when it comes to religious liberty? Burden at times, and so it clarifies in there that they can't burden it unless the government has a compelling reason to do so, and they have to do it in the least restrictive means possible. And I think most people around the country just intuitively know that religious freedom has kind of been viewed as a second-class right. Freedom of speech, yeah, it's first-class, but you know, the founders of our country felt so strongly about freedom of religion and rights of conscience that they, they put it right there in the First Amendment. But Holly Dixon argues this measure doesn't exactly strike a balance. Essentially, um, issue three elevates religious freedom and exercise above all other rights guaranteed to us by the Arkansas Constitution including equal protection under the law, the right to vote, the right to hold and run for office, to choose who we do and do not associate with, the right to education, rights to privacy, all other rights would be secondary to uh, religious exercise. So this is a really radical um, change to the way that our rights are balanced in this country. And the Freedom of Religion Amendment offers little guidance for how courts could or should interpret claims. Religion itself can be hard to pin down, and it's notably undefined in this amendment. And a clause in the amendment states religious freedom claims should be liberally construed. Dixon refers back to the 2015 Act that Issue 3 is based on. This is really a copycat of what was proposed in 2015 when there was the hysteria over marriage equality coming to the United States. Um, so it's it's really just the same old drumbeat, um, new, you know, new year. That legislation initially had language that would have allowed businesses and individuals to not comply with anti-discrimination laws based on religious belief. It was later replaced But Dixon says issue three opens the door for similar problems. But I mean, everything from traffic tickets to fire codes to laws on, you know, all the criminal laws, whether it's child abuse, domestic abuse, et cetera, are opened up to new defenses. And then not only that, but people could sue government actors, whether it's police or any other clerk that works for city, county Uh, or state government to be then subject to a claim. This would really force every every government employee to, on the spot, have to conduct some constitutional analysis on religious liberty that there's um, there's not any guidance to how 
this would play out. And so that's why I say it really opens a Pandora's box. So for the average person who goes to church or exercises their faith day to day, what does this amendment mean? Evan Garner is a rector with St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. He says he doesn't think the amendment gives anything people in his church don't already have. I think on the surface, the ballot initiative seems to want to enshrine again what feels like has already been enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. I, I don't know if this is one of those issues where it will actually have no real impact on the lives of the people of the state, other than that the people who vote for it might get a little uh, credit in the minds of their constituents. Uh, I, I don't know enough about the implications of it, but it feels like the ballot initiative is basically saying, are you glad we have the First Amendment? And as for religious liberty being second class, Garner says he's not so sure about that. Even during the pandemic, when churches had to close, Garner says he didn't feel like this was a violation. Uh, we, throughout the pandemic, we were grateful for local, state, and national leaders who would give us as much information as they had about uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic. We were grateful for responsible leadership. Um, as a congregation, we tended to be more cautious and careful than a lot of other businesses, organizations, or institutions. We recognize that we have a number of vulnerable people. Um, and so I, we never felt like we wanted to do something that we weren't allowed to because of COVID restrictions. So that, that really wasn't an issue for us. Ballot initiative number three seems to be a reflection of increased concern in the wider community that um, that the interests of the state and the interests of people of faith are opposed or at least in tension with each other. And, and often I find that's not the case. So a quick recap. A vote for ballot issue three, the Arkansas Religious Freedom Amendment, means you support prohibiting the burden of government on a person's religious freedom unless there's a compelling reason to do so. And a vote against means, well, the opposite. For more on this and other ballot measures, you can go to KUAF.com slash vote. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth prepared that story for today's new episode of our podcast, Natural Election, inside the Karen Taha News Studio. A more than $10 million grant will be a building block for a new Energy Frontier Research Center at the University of Arkansas. The $10.35 million grant comes from the U.S. Department of Energy. Specifically, the money will establish the Center for Manipulation of Atomic Ordering for Manufacturing Semiconductors and will be the first Energy Frontier Research Center located in Arkansas. A press release from the University of Arkansas describes the research as dedicated to investigating the formation of atomic orders in semiconductor alloys and their effects on various physical properties. The new center of the U.S. population is in the Ozark Hills. Tomorrow, NOAA and the U.S. Census Bureau will dedicate a survey mark in Hartville, Missouri, about 175 miles northwest of Fayetteville. The center of the population, determined after every U.S. census, is a point where an imaginary, flat, weightless, and rigid map of the United States would balance perfectly if everyone were of identical weight. The fictional center is 35 or 34 miles southeast of the last such place, Plato, Missouri, that was determined after the 2010 census. This is Ozarks at Large. Later this week, the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design at the University of Arkansas will host the two-day symposium, The Place of Practice, The Practice of Place. The gathering stems from a collaboration with the magazine Oxford American and is taking place in conjunction with the current exhibition, A South 40, Contemporary Architecture and Design in the American South, that's on display at the Faye Jones School through mid-December. Yesterday, we invited Faye Jones School Dean Peter McKeith to give us a preview of the symposium. He says inspiration for the symposium, the exhibition, and the Oxford American collaboration can be traced back to when he was looking at one of the magazine's issues devoted to music of the American South. And I looked at that and I thought, as I have thought for 
virtually all my entire life, that architecture, landscape architecture, interior design, anything that we design and place in our environment is as much an expression of who we are, as much an expression of our culture as music literature. It works more slowly, but materially, it's much more um, or as important, let's say. And so I put that initial thought to Ray Wittenberg, who, um, whose brother is a member of a prestigious architecture family here in Arkansas, but Ray in his role working for the Oxford American, and he said, that's intriguing. Let me take that into the editorial consideration. And lo and behold, it um, really gained momentum from there. And to some extent, I think we're always looking in our ideas and our work for a form of therapeutic validation <laughs> that we're not crazy in thinking the way we do. And Ray came back and said, in fact, this is appealing to us and how could we work together? So we had a number of very productive discussions with the editorial board at the Oxford American and ultimately determined that um, they would like to focus an issue on the literature of place which has a very important role in the history of literature in the American South. And then within that, we could nest what was then growing as an exhibition idea, which was uh, intended to be a way to demonstrate the diversity and the vitality of uh, practices across the American South. And it went from there. You stressed at the beginning of, of, of this that uh, this is contemporary South. Why is that important? I think, and I'm not alone in this, that, uh, and I'm not alone in architecture, I'm not alone, I think, in uh, across the ranges of, of cultural expression, that there are any number of tropes or mm -hmm. default settings in the public mind um, and in, let's just say, the, the general reputation uh, regarding um, the American South. And if we speak of the architecture of the American South, very often the default setting uh, leans towards um, plantation uh, houses or mansions or um, sharecroppers shacks. And there may be value in looking at those and in continuing to assess those. I, I know there is, uh, critically speaking. And yet the American South truly any region is much more than its default settings, much more than its conventions. And we wanted to, uh, if nothing else, um, update <laughs> that understanding of the, of the American South. We certainly wanted to uh, indicate to the larger public, even to ourselves, that we were working well beyond those default settings and those stereotypes and those conventions, in large part um, because we need to and perhaps at the time in which we were conceiving the exhibition and the issue of the Oxford American, more than ever, we needed to be revitalizing our understanding of what it means to live and work and love and grieve in the American South. And um, this was something we felt we needed to emphasize from the start. What is it to be living now, designing now, being an architect uh, and landscape architect now in the American South um, for all of its complexities. It is a very contemporary challenge and it's uh, being faced by some rather extraordinary people. The South 40 Contemporary Architecture and Design in the American South shows, I think, that it isn't uniform at all. There, there's this wide swath of, of what design and architecture looks like in the contemporary South now. Correct, and, and I think that's a very important um, a message to be sending, that there is not a uniformity um, and there is not a, a similarity. Uh, in other words, it would be very difficult to achieve a certain stereotype or conventional understanding of what architecture looks like in the South. At the same time, I think there are a set of principles or an emerging set of, of underlying concepts which um, our group um, very much uh, find relevant to their work, whether they're working in North Carolina or whether they're working in Texas. Um, and much of that has to do with the places, uh, the place and the places in which they are situated and attentiveness to that. 
This was very important for us as a school as well, because in our role as educators, trying to um, prepare this generation for the challenges of the future is to say, what are you doing now? What can you do over the next 10, 20, 30 years longer to address issues of climate change, to address issues of social justice, to address issues of responsibly working with our uh, natural resources, and so on. Um, these, I think, are fundamental and uh, in another context, I've called them radical, as you know. Um, but I think that's an important understanding, I hope, for any viewing public to understand that there are these principles that bind these practices together beyond whatever the, uh, the um, appearance outcomes have been. You mentioned that architecture might move more slowly, at least for the public consciousness as, as art and part of our culture. When you mention things like climate change... You also understand that you – I don't know. If you're an artist and you, you create a painting or an album and it doesn't quite go where you want it to go, you can get at it again maybe later that year. In architecture, the window of opportunity is much smaller. Not many second chances, so to speak, at least on the same site with the right. same program with the same people to engage with. Um, and this is where the design process is as important as the outcome. Um, it's also where I think, again, the, um, the understanding of what truly matters in your community, what truly matters when you are working with materials, what truly matters when you're working with local labor forces, um, can be all to the, the benefit of the long durability of the project. This has been always very fascinating for me is the, uh, the, the sense of time that um, anyone working in design must have out of necessity uh, of almost seeing not just in the, in the five years that it might take to conceive and construct a building, but actually the 50 years or more in which that building will be inhabited potentially by multiple inhabitants and have multiple purposes but hopefully still be of value to that community and to those people. That's a, um, a, it's a goal for education. How do you slow things down but also pr uh, produce vision in a, in a young person um, as they move forward? And here we have roughly 40 architects who are working with that type of vision. The symposium, I love the speakers and the subjects, kind of reflects just what you've been talking about. It dovetails history and other mm -hmm. issues about and, and weaves them into architecture and design. Yes, very much so. And as I say, the initial project was with the Oxford American, we'll, we'll conceive an exhibition and we'll conceive a place-centered issue of the Oxford American. Um, and we'd like to get that out into the public. So this is what took us to Venice, uh, right. Italy, for, with the exhibition and with the issue. And um, yet, uh, for the last uh, two years, certainly we have been envisioning and hoping for the occasion in which we could bring the exhibition to the public uh, here, first in uh, Fayetteville in Arkansas, and then hopefully now uh, elsewhere uh, across the South. But it also then enabled us to begin to think about this larger set of dialogues, a symposium, um, extending out from the, the issues that the exhibition raises implicitly. What is it to design to place? What is it to practice in a place? Uh, what are those conditions across the multiple places of our participating practices that uh, we, in a sense, have consensus on or see as common cause? And I think that's where we've uh, devised the structure, hopefully, in which those issues will come out. All of the uh, events connected with this weekend symposium are at Vol Walker Hall. Correct. But if you're not here, you can still participate. There is a Zoom link. Um, which is um, embedded in the announcements that we make. There's one Zoom link for Friday's events. There's another one for Saturday's events. Um, but in that sense, it is free and open to the public. We want this to be a, um, a discussion and, and ongoing as well. I will say that many of the architects participating in the symposium are um, available to us here in Northwest Arkansas, in fact. Um, we will hear, for instance, from Roy Decker and Anne-Marie uh, Duvall, whose work for the Springfield 
municipal center now nearing uh, completion is uh, on view uh, and truly to be experienced by the community. Um, Roberto de Leon of the um, Louisville-based practice de Leon and Primer, they've done the Rogers Historical Museum, um, not so far away too. Uh, uh, Steve Dumez of SQ Dumez Ripple in New Orleans, they've uh, participated together with the Marlon Blackwell Architects at the Thaden School uh, in uh, Bentonville. So these are practices which might seem at some distance from us, even though we're familiar with Jackson and New Orleans and, uh, and Louisville, but they are right here at home as well. Magazine, internationally exhibited uh, collection, now a symposium. Does it continue? We hope so. Uh, number The first thing is, uh, as I've said at the outset, it's an open-ended, ongoing proposition. We'd like to continue to draw more practices to this. I think there's um, actual necessity to engage more practices of landscape architecture into the entire discussion. How could we not? It just stands to reason that we need to. Um, I'd like to uh, think that there are practices that are just emerging. Um, Perhaps they have one project or two projects. This is a platform for such a practice to gain a a foothold as well. We've tried to do that to a certain extent. So there too, it's a a growing uh, possibility. It might still be a South 40 in another year's time, but it might be with 80 practices at that point. Um, We do have other ambitions, I think. Um, The exhibition as designed is uh, designed to be demountable and to be transported easily to other locations. So we'd like to reposition the exhibition all across the South, certainly. And uh, uh, there are um, biennials now um, across the U.S. and elsewhere where we'd like to take this. And we'll, it's, uh, as I say, it's a platform for us to continue to promote what we're doing. Peter McKeith is the dean of the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design at the University of Arkansas. Our conversation took place yesterday in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. The symposium, The Place of Practice, The Practice of Place, begins Friday on the U of A campus, and you can also watch on Facebook. The exhibition, A South 40, Contemporary Architecture and Design in the American South, is on display at the Faye Jones School through December 16th. More information at asouth 40 Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more are available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infant Center in Fayetteville. WRegional.com slash HerHealth to learn more. The Hillberry Harvest Moon Music and Camping Festival is September 28th through October 2nd at The Farm in Eureka Springs. And KUAF is giving you the chance to win tickets. Hillberry welcomes local and national touring acts, plus artists and art installations, food vendors, and more. Registration and additional information available at KUAF.com. Thank you, everybody who is getting us off to a wonderful start when it comes to our month-long fundraising month of September. We've now raised nearly $31,000 toward the $150,000 goal for the month. We'll have our annual fall on-air fundraiser for five days beginning Monday. Every contribution between now and then counts toward that $150,000 goal. And we use those contributions to bring you news about the upcoming election, to provide you with international, national, and local news every day on the air, through our free podcasts, our free streams at KUAF.com, and our free KUAF app. You make that happen. And you can contribute by going to supportKUAF.com or by mailing your contribution to KUAF, 9 South School, Bayville, Arkansas, 72701. Tomorrow on Ozarks, a brief visit with New York City native and now Nashville-based singer, songwriter, and new mom, Kate Schechter who is playing at Format Fest this weekend in Bentonville. We're driving eight hours from Nashville, so hopefully our baby doesn't scream for too long in the car. I don't know if you can hear her. She's been crying in the background, but, uh, you know, it's going to be... I'm just happy to be getting out and doing what I love to do, and especially in uh, Bentonville at this really special event. I think it's going to be awesome. Okay, check her with us tomorrow on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m.
Pretty Woman the Musical makes its way to Walton Art Center beginning tonight. Matthew Stauke, who plays the role of Philip Stuckey, also played the role in the Broadway production. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore asked him what changed for him between the Broadway production and a national touring company. That's uh, we, we do a lot of these. That's the first time I've been asked that, and it's actually a huge part of life that is quite different when you know I started touring when I was in my 20s and having recently turned 50. It's a, um, it's a very different life, and there are challenges at 50 that were not part of life at 27 or 28 when touring. My, I say this, my job is fantastic. I love the show. I love the people I work with. My role is so fun. But touring at 50 is a challenge, to say the least. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it seems glamorous, but over the last 300 and I think we've been out here 350, 55, 350 nights, uh, spent about 327 of them in hotels. And while that might sound awesome, it's not always the case. <laughs> it's, um, you know, we, we, at, at my age and for, for a lot of my friends, we've created lives. You know, we've created lives and are firmly entrenched. I've been in New York City for 27 years. And, um, you know, leaving my lady, leaving my house, leaving, you know, my friends and my, my lifestyle and everything is, is uh, it's not as easy to do as it was at 26 or 27, where you were probably subletting somewhere. You packed your bag and you walked out the door. And I miss cooking. I miss my bed. I miss, you know, all those things that as you get older are the simple joys in life. But that having been said, you know, especially coming out of the pandemic when the theater industry a while back is not all the way back, it's a great job. And uh, I love doing it on Broadway. And I actually enjoy doing this version of the show, which changed a little bit from the Broadway production, better than I enjoyed that one. So while, you know, nothing compares to performing on Broadway and getting to be home and getting to be in New York, uh, which is lovely, this was an opportunity that uh, I pretty much jumped at. And we're almost a year into it, which is really hard to believe, you know, considering, uh, you know, what our producers and, and, and general managers were up against. And we didn't know in the summer of 2021 if, you know, tours were going to work, if, if anything was going to work. And, you know, it's worked beyond their imaginations and beyond mine. And, you know, we've already put in a year and we've got about nine months left and, uh, we're just chugging along. We just had a break for a couple of weeks, which was nice. And Atlanta is our first city back. And then we get to Fayetteville. It's a great gig. That's all I can say. It's a, it's a really great job. The people I work with are terrific. And, you know, the differences between being in New York and being at home and being with your loved ones and your friends is um, it's a challenge, but it's one that, uh, you know, is certainly doable given uh, the, the, the terrific, terrific job that I have. Do you find that you have to build in some routines? I before I got into journalism, I was actually I did some tour production doing video screens for music festivals. So I used to travel a lot too and I found that I was very particular about my my sleep habits and that I had to do things a very specific way because I stayed in hotels that weren't very expensive to stay in. And so I, I invested in a, in a sleep mask and I invested in like some towel or some pillows that I traveled with all the time so that I at least found some comfort in, in wherever I was, that it was at least I had a little bit of a say in what was happening. Do you find that you have some routines like that too? 100%. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely necessary. As you get older, also, you have bumps and bruises and things that hurt and, you know, things you have to maintain and especially doing eight shows a week. I mean, we have PT, we have all kinds of stuff. And, um, but yeah, I've got a real expensive pillow that I take with me from <laughs> hotel to hotel. And like you said, you know, we, we stay in some really nice hotels. We stay in some that are adequate, to put it nicely. <laughs> but, you know, going week to week from a different mattress to different water pressure, different, you know, I mean, it, yeah. it, everything is different, you know. Um, we're, we're fortunate right now, the place we're staying in Atlanta, we have a kitchenette, you know, to me, the thing I, one of the things I miss most about routine at home is cooking. I love to cook. And that is the biggest challenge when on tour. Uh, and everybody gets, you know, you buy your tiny little griddle, you buy your, your smoothie maker, you have, you know, those things that you can travel with. It's just not the same, you know? So, you know, to create a few of the creature comforts that you have when you're, you know, in your home, is vital and schedule wise. I mean, 
for the most part, once we get to a city during the week, we have all the time free up until we go to the show. So, you know, we all go to the gym and we go look for a good, you know, coffee place. And, uh, you know, my buddy Adam Pascal, who plays uh, Edward Lewis, we go looking for good sushi everywhere. So, you know, you, you do get into your routines. You know, I talk to my girlfriend pretty much the same time during the day. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you make the most of it. And, and time actually flies insanely fast, especially in the in the cities we're in for only one week. It's you unpack, you get comfortable, then you repack and you go. So uh, it becomes a lot of routine. You are correct. It's, uh, you know, it's about creating uh, little comforts for yourself. And, you know, but I've also always kind of enjoyed doing a little adventuring and I'm a photographer, which is my other avocation. So, you know, rolling into every city and going and finding interesting places to photograph and uh, those kinds of things. It, 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 you know, it, it's not a bad lifestyle. It has its challenges, but it's in a lot of ways, uh, a really pretty decent way to make a living. I heard an interview where you talk about your character in Pretty Woman. You play Phil Stuckey as the bad guy and that you love playing the bad guy. Why do you think it's so delicious to play the bad guy in a show? <laughs> you, you did listen to one of those interviews. I use the word delicious all the time. I haven't gotten to play the baddie too much in my career. And it's just really fun. And especially this guy, because as I, my, you know, my, my, my stump speech for Phil Stuckey is he's a good guy right until the end. Because I am just doing my job. I refer to him, for those of us who are uh, diehard fans of The Godfather, I'm Tom Hagen. I'm the consigliere. I do his bidding. I go out there and I make him money, and in turn, I make me money. And it was 1990, and as Gordon Gecko and Wall Street told us, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. So it was the way things were. It was Wall Street. It was conglomerations. It was corporate takeovers and buyouts. And I was his right-hand man, and I, I did my job, and I did it very, very well. Uh, and I always say the thing that sends Phil Stuckey into the bad place is the fact not that Vivian is a prostitute, not that he, you know, that she has infiltrated Edward Lewis's life, but that she directly took money out of my pocket. And Phil doesn't like that. <laughs> Phil does not enjoy when you mess with his money. So. Yeah, he turns into a pretty much of a, of, a, of a bad guy, you know, and, and makes some questionable choices, but certainly gets his comeuppance, too. But it's a fun role to play, and, uh, you know, I, I say this on interviews all the time. It's, I get booed. I get booed at my curtain call, which I think is hilarious. I just think it's, you know, I just want to say, come on, man, it's not me. I'm just reading the words, you know, but it's really, really fun. You know, it's funny, and, and because... So many people know this movie backwards and forwards. Who do you play? I play the lawyer. Ew. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's me. That's the fun role. So, no, it's a blast. It really, really is. You know, I've I've played a lot of kind of you know wholesome good guys in my career, and you know, to get to play this guy, especially in all these different cities and different reactions, and. It's great fun. It really is great fun. How does your approach change when you're doing an adaptation from a film like Pretty Woman or The Wedding Singer, films that people know back and forth, like you said, compared to a more traditional theater play or a musical? With this show, I started, good Lord, in 2016 with the early workshops. The director, Jerry Mitchell, has been a good buddy of mine for a long time. We worked on The Full Monty, another movie musical, um, 22 years ago on Broadway, and have worked on a bunch of projects together and he's a great guy and a terrific director. And so, you know, when you, when you start developing these projects, you just get people in a room and you read through the script and you sing through some of the songs in a very sort of skeleton kind of way. And then it just starts to develop. But the script for this show, while not word for word uh, from the movie is pretty close. And you can tell because people in the audience sometimes like to say the lines along with us. I'm not kidding. It's pretty funny because they know them. They know them back and forth. And when she says big mistake, big, huge, they all know it. But obviously you start to make things your own. And my version of Philip Stuckey is very different from Jason Daniely, who originated the role on Broadway. It's very different from Jason Alexander. So, you know, it, 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 any good director will allow you to kind of develop it within certain parameters. And, you know, you don't get too crazy. There's enough meat with this character where you don't have to really do a lot. But approaching it, you know, Jerry gave me full reign to – kind of put my stamp on it and uh, trust me as an actor. And, you know, I trust him as a director to, to keep me on the right path. And 
it's just been a blast. It's been absolutely. I understudied the part on Broadway, and it's a little bit different than that because when you're an understudy, you sort of try to approximate what the guy is doing who plays the role. So if for no other reason, just to pay respect to the other actors who are used to kind of one thing. But when creating the role on tour uh, with Adam Pascal and Olivia Valley, the, the, the uh, Edward and Vivian, and they're really the only two people I interact with in the entire show, you know, we all had our chance to kind of put our stamp on it. And it's been wonderful. And it's uh, and they are so different from the actors who played the roles on Broadway and uh, we've kind of grown together and we have a really great thing going. So yeah, getting to, getting to make this guy my own has been a blast. It really has. I got one last one for you, Matt. When you look back at your career, what was the most productive no you received? Man, that's a good question. Well done. Most productive no. I would say probably the first three years of my career where I, it's not that I didn't work, but it was a very logical progression for a young actor. Uh, I came out of a really good program. I went to Carnegie Mellon, got a plug CMU, and got to the city in 1995 when showbiz was a very different animal in 1995 than it is now. And it has improved in, in many, many ways. But it was very different then. And it was a little more ruthless. It was a little bit more not pulling a lot of punches. So a lot of the jobs that I got to the end to the wire, down to the wire for new Broadway shows and didn't get were some of the best training I ever had. And that feeling of not getting a gig never changes. I've worked a lot in the last almost 30 years, but it never doesn't hurt because it's a hundred percent personal, but toughening your skin up at an early moment in your career certainly uh, pays great dividends. So, there were a series of no's with very high-profile jobs in the first couple of years that I was in New York, where I saw some of my friends, some of my peers get gigs that I really thought that I was going to get, and it didn't make me crumble. You know, normally it's a it's a binary thing with people where if you get kicked in the teeth a few times, some people just cash it in. And my mother always said that that was never in my plan, that every time, you know, I, I took one in the teeth, I doubled down. And that's really the only way to do it. If you, if, if you have any shred of doubt, uh, you're dead. You're absolutely dead. So you can, you can feel down and then, you, you know, lace up your boots and keep on going. So I would say early on, some of the, uh, some of the real crushing disappointments really shaped who I became and who I'm continually evolving, you know, as a performer in a business that is, it can be completely brutal. So it's, uh, you know, it's how you take it. It's how you, you know, uh, it's how you fall down, you know, to use all the cliches and getting back up and all those things. But uh, I would say the early part of my career and having a couple of big things pulled right out from under me at the last minute, really, uh, really, kind of made me focus even harder. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I thank those, you know, five or six directors back between 1995 and 1998 who said thanks but no thanks because it did me a world of good. You can see Matt Stokey as Phil Stuckey in Pretty Woman the Musical at Walton Art Center starting September 20th. Matt, thanks for spending some time with me today. My pleasure. Have a good one. Ozarks at Large is Matthew Moore speaking with Matthew Stokey, one of the cast members of the touring production of Pretty Woman, the musical. Pretty Woman, on stage tonight through Sunday at Walton Arts Center in Fayetteville. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Lee County native had a prodigious, if not distinguished, career as a film and television director and producer. Arthur Gene Wilker Yarbrough was born in Marianne in 1900 and was working in silent movies in California by 1922. Yarbrough directed short films in the 1920s and his first feature-length film, Rebellious Daughters, in 1938. Over the next decade or so, he directed 52 feature films, mostly B-movies for Hollywood's Poverty Row. He moved to television in the 1950s, directing episodes of The Addams Family, Gunsmoke, Death Valley Days, McHale's Navy, The Life of Riley, and Petticoat Junction. Yarbrough was married at least twice, and his daughter Janice would later work as an actress and producer. His last feature film was 1967's Hillbillies in a Haunted House, but he also directed The Over the Hill Gang for television two years later, which was considered a success. He continued directing television episodes into the 1970s, dying at Los Angeles in 1975. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. 
This weekend, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the Republican candidate for governor in Arkansas, was released from the hospital after successful surgery to remove her thyroid and surrounding lymph nodes and was declared cancer-free. For their conversation this week about Arkansas politics, Roby Brock with Talk Business and Politics asked John Brummett, a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, if Brummett thought the news would at all alter the race against Democrat Chris Jones. True. I don't think it... I can't sense that it changes anything. It hasn't changed much of the tone of social media commentary. Uh, uh, I can't imagine that it would change the tone of her campaign, soften it or or soften any views toward her. Uh, I can't see anything about it. Uh, assuming the information uh, proves to be correct, that, that the surgery was successful and she'll be back at it in a few weeks. But I do wonder about uh, whether she'll be able to actively campaign eventually at all before, you know, it's, this is uh, almost October and she's got some recuperation to do uh, and some treatment to do. I'm wondering if uh, we'll have a debate uh, now. Uh, I, and I'm not saying that those are tactics. I'm just, those are things I'm wondering about. But in terms of how it's going, how it might affect people's attitudes, uh, how it might affect the two campaigns. It seems to uh, uh, it, it seems to explain itself that uh, that uh, she had this uh, condition and it's been surgically tended to, and chances are she'll be all right and not be affected. So I'm just looking for whether the actual rhythm of the campaign changes, whether it's an active campaign. She hasn't been traditionally active much anyway. And now this calls that more into question. That's really the only effect I see right now. Yeah. I mean, I think this campaign was headed for a general election of television ads primarily and probably some digital ads in a big way as well. So uh, that does not require a ton of public appearances. But we do wish her well. Um, Of course we do. You you never want to hear anybody with that kind of diagnosis. So of course not. Uh, let's uh, let's shift and talk about some poll numbers in our latest talk business politics, uh, Hendricks College poll. She's up 11 points on Chris Jones. I sense that when she spends three and a half million dollars to his $350,000, the dynamic of that spread may change significantly. Um, that poll number plus others on candidates, anything surprise you in there? Uh, a little bit surprised that uh, she's not ahead more, but when you think about it, it doesn't surprise me. I think one of, I think your Republican analyst yesterday on television said this is probably a high water mark for Democrats and a low water mark for Republicans because Jones has been active. Sarah hasn't been highly uh, active. Trump is uh, dragging Republicans down. Roe v. Wade, the, uh, that uh, uh, that repeal is uh, maybe hurting. Uh, it's it's hurting Republicans uh, nationally. It may have some effect in Arkansas. And even at that, it's fifty-one forty. So, yeah, I was surprised it was eleven point margin, but not terribly. It makes sense. Your point is. Uh, the things I found interesting, Trump's approval rating is at is down at 48. His negative rating is the same, 48. She is at 51. So she's, the way I put, and Joe Biden's negative, uh, anti-Democrat, anti-liberal uh, rating is 62. Yeah, you got all these uh, Democrats and, and, uh, and uh, liberal-minded people just deploring, and I share the what they deplore, that she's not run about a single Arkansas issue. She hasn't outlined a a single Arkansas solution, an Arkansas-specific solution. But these numbers bear out that that the ticket nowadays in the current culture is a a toxic, nationalized uh, culture. And you take advantage of that. That's, I mean, she knows, if she knows anything, she knows how to run campaigns, how to read numbers. She's been doing it for candidates, including her father and John Bozeman and French Hill and others uh, for years. And, and so that's, that's what this poll would tell her tactically to do. And I think that's, uh, that's what we're going to see. The poll also tells me that, and I've admitted this, I think, yesterday, I'm going to admit it again tomorrow, the, the Arkansas culture is not this, this raging 
conservative culture in Arkansas is not so much adoration for Trump. It is fear and disdain for national democratic liberalism. I think that's I think that's it, and I think that's what we're going to see her seek with some success with all her money and expertise politically take advantage, to take advantage of. Let's move to issues one, two, and three. Issue one, uh, which would allow the legislature to call themselves into special session uh, by some process, uh, I think around 40%, but it had a good 15, 16 point lead on those opposed to it. Still a sizable undecided in there, but it clearly had some margin of um, of lead there. Issues two and three, which issue two would be the threshold to get to 60% uh, with ballot issues. Issue three is a religious freedom uh, amendment. Those were a little bit more muddled. We kind of saw them one third, one third, one third, kind of four against and undecided. Um, are you surprised that the general public and voters would be more willing to let legislatures call the, let the legislature call themselves into session? Hmm. What was that? Forty-one yes and twenty-four no, and the rest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I have to admit, I thought, wow. Uh, but I get forty-one are ready to do that. But this is an insider's political theory uh, issue more than just regular voters who probably haven't really thought this through and and, and might not. I and many others uh, recoil at the notion that this legislature or any legislature in a state with a constitutionally weak governor would further weaken the governor by, by taking away his or her uh, rare authority to, own, to, to be the only one to call special sessions. Don't like the idea of the legislature getting mad at the governor because the governor is responding to the coronavirus with a mask mandate and they call themselves into session and say you can't do it, for example. That's a specific application. But in terms of general theory, I think our, our governor, our governor can get a veto overridden by the same majority of vote that passed the bill. Our governor is constitutionally weak. At least our governor can can control. Uh, they call it a special sessions. To an extent, once they get here, the legislators, by this same two-thirds by which they could call themselves under this amendment, could extend the session. So to me, that's a horrible proposal. But I can see why people are thinking, well, why not? There are elected leg legislators. And the point I just made, that they could call themselves into session and limit the governor's ex emergency authority and like a virus, that would have been popular in Arkansas, I suspect. So I'm not terribly surprised. I hope uh, some groups... Uh, will uh, at least spread the word about uh, the uh, about the about the political theory of the matter. Should that matter at all? John Brummett is a political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. His work can be found at ArkansasOnline.com. More from the conversation with Roby Brock available at TalkBusiness.net. Ozarks at Large is underwritten in part by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Skokas Performing Arts Center in Alma presents The Three Redneck Tenors, a new breed in the tenor genre with musical comedy featuring classically trained artists. Written by opera veteran Matthew Lord with music arranged by award-winning composer Craig Baumler, The Three Redneck Tenors were top finalists on America's Got Talent and have been thrilling audiences since 2006. It's October 1st at 7.30 p.m. Tickets and more at 479-632-2129 or online at scocuspac.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and White Rock. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Matthew Moore, and Roby Brock. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Ryan Versi is KUAF's underwriting director. We're back with you tomorrow, noon and seven, and on the Ozarks at Large podcast. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Callums.